Programming Throwdown, Episode 71, Office Spaces. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everyone. Uh, so Halloween is approaching, and one of the things we got to do for Halloween is get our Wi-Fi set up. <laughs> That's sure. Worst segue ever. So I wanted to tell everyone about uh, my Wi-Fi setup because I think it's pretty cool. A lot of people don't um, really take the time to kind of set up something but uh, it can really make your life a lot easier. Um, so uh, yeah, so what I have, I actually have um, you know, the modem connected to a wireless router. Um, the wireless router can do the 2.4 gigahertz, but it could also do the five gigahertz. It's like the dual band router. Um, and then I have uh, an extender, which is you know, on the other end of the house or about halfway through the house. And so the extender allows us to like extend the internet. So in other words, if we didn't have the extender, then uh, it just happens that the cable company put our you know, cable modem on the far side of the house. And so we don't have internet on the other side without this extender, right? Um, so that's pretty standard. Um, but the part that's really cool, I installed this thing called DDWRT. And I highly recommend before you buy your wireless router that you go on the website, DDWRT, I think, .com, and uh, make sure that your router is compatible with this. Uh, even if you don't plan on doing it right away, it's just good to, to, to have that capability, right? And so some of the things that it does, you can actually assign uh, domain names to MAC addresses. So, J- so J- Jason, one second. So the idea of DDWRT is it's a replacement firmware. So instead of the firmware your router ships with, you install essentially a different operating system for the router. So a different firmware made by different people than what your yeah. router came with. And it unlocks extra capabilities. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. So basically, it's I think it's a version of Linux or something. I don't, I don't know the details. But uh, yeah, imagine it's like, you know, installing you know ubuntu on your desktop instead of windows it's, it's going to change you know basically everything um but one of the things it has which you know my router didn't have the capability of is you can say you know this mac address should have this name so for example my desktop uh, has the name gnome g-n-o-m-e and uh, you know my laptop has a different name my work laptop has a different name and so if i want to connect to my desktop and, uh, and i'm at home I can just type, you know, SSH GNOME. Or because, you know, I have my own domain name, I can type SSH GNOME dot, you know, my domain name. And uh, and it will connect. And so even if my desktop has a different IP address, it doesn't matter. I can just connect to GNOME. And so even like the Raspberry Pi is called Pi. You know, everything is just on a name basis. Um, the other thing I have is uh, um, I have what's called... a. Uh, uh, well, I have a bunch of port forwarding, so I can actually SSH to gnome.mydomainname even if I'm somewhere else, like even if I'm in another country, and it'll actually go to that domain name, which will send the SSH command to my house, and then my router will send that um, command to gnome. So, so I could do SSH gnome from you know my house, I could do it from someone else's house, and it just works. Um, 
And so that's uh, DNS mask is the part of DWRT that does that. Um, the other thing that's pretty cool, it has per MAC address bandwidth. So, you know, have you ever had this happen where one of the computers in the house starts updating? Like someone else in your family maybe, you know, or maybe they're watching a really high dev video or, you know, the computer is just downloading some large update and it kind of slows everybody else down. Like everyone else, the video starts stuttering or if you're playing a game, it starts jittering or something like that. So I have like per MAC address bandwidth cap. So, you know, even if it's downloading some update and even if, you know, Microsoft on the other end has just unlimited bandwidth, it's not going to download it more than, I don't know what I have it set to, maybe a megasecond or something. And so that's going to make sure that one computer isn't, you know, starving everybody else. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of my setup. Uh, I'm really digging it. Um, I, uh, I had an issue today and uh, I was able to resolve it using our tool of the show. So we'll, a little foreshadowing. Um, but in general, you know, having a DWRT makes life kind of way easier. And, uh, you know, I highly recommend it. And it works kind of really well with, you know, Plex and some of these other things that we've talked about in the past. Um, anything where you're kind of using your own network, right? Very cool. I've been using OpenWRT and DDWRT, um, which I won't get into the political banter. I actually don't know the difference, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I think OpenWRT is a little harder to use, but the more open source sort of spirit one. Oh, okay. Um, and they've come a long way. It's, I don't know. I haven't used uh, OpenWRT in a while. So when I used to use it, the op- so DDWRT has a really nice uh, user interface, a web GUI. Uh, and when I last used it, which probably was more than five years ago, OpenWRT didn't. Um, oh, but okay. I've probably used some combination of the two for seven eight years maybe even more maybe 10 years um so for a long time uh and i am by no means a networking person uh so doing the things jason said so you know doing static ips for certain mac addresses naming things doing qos filtering so that you know http traffic is given preference over BitTorrent traffic um which i never have on my network um, and the, <laughs> right, of course. Y- well, you have BitTorrent Sync, right? That was one of our tools of the show. Yes, and I think also um, not Steam, but some other stuff uses BitTorrent uh, for updating stuff. Yeah, um, Blizzard. Yeah, yeah the yeah, Blizzard right. games. Yeah. Um, and then recently, though, I gave up my last DDWRT router and went enterprise grade. Uh, and this is going to sound like total shill but I bought Ubiquiti enterprise-grade networking hardware. Um, How much did that cost? Was that it turns out not as expensive as you might think hearing the words enterprise-grade networking yeah, right. hardware. Uh, so, uh, a, you know, sort of mid-range to, like, pretty good consumer router probably costs, like, 100 to $150. Oh, okay. Um, and so a, a Ubiquiti comes sort of piecemeal. So instead of, like, Jason was describing, like, a router and a wireless access point built into one. Um, the enterprise stuff is more split apart. And this isn't true, you know, enterprise, enterprise grade, although it can be, but this is sort of the lower end, like entry level, almost like with uh, digital SLRs, the, the kind of prosumer. So it's both people who are professional enterprise, but also people who are just want really good hardware for their house. Um, so is they it, sort is of it target huge both. or like what does no. it look like? No, so it's pretty small. Um, but it comes okay. piecemeal. So I have a router 
that has no wireless capabilities and then a single wireless access point. But the coverage on it is so much better than I was getting from my normal, just sort of like Asus uh, router that I had before. Uh, and part of that is because even with DWRT, you could increase the power of your router. Increasing the right. power of the router helps for your cell phone, for instance, to be able to hear the router, but it doesn't help the router be able to hear your phone. So oh, that makes sense. increasing power actually can help in some limited circumstances, but not in all of them. So having you know big antennas helps and stuff too. Um, and the, some of the nicer things have that, but you know, sort of boosting power doesn't actually advantage you as much as you, or as I naively sort of thought. But the antennas in in the this ubiquity hardware are much better. And there's several other um, brands that do this sort of enterprise slash prosumer stuff. But I think it ended up being I, I think it's sort of like fifty dollars for the router I got and like a hundred hundred and ten dollars for the access point. So like one sixty. So most people that's, probably that's not bad at all probably don't spend that much money on their, you know, router, but people who pay a lot of attention might. Um, I mean, I actually, I bought a Netgear and I spent probably close to the same thing. And I got, I mean, it was definitely like a high-end Netgear. Yeah. Um, That's one thing we should mention, actually. Spend a lot of money on a router because a (laughs) lot of these, a lot of these like, uh, um, like access points, they're totally starved for memory. Like, you get this access point that tries to run Linux on, you know, a gig of RAM or something. And it's also trying to do all this other stuff, right? So just spend the extra money and get, you know, like a nice router that has four or eight gigs of RAM. It's going to make a huge difference. Yeah. So the this enterprise stuff, though, is super awesome in that, like, it's been rock solid. So since I've installed, I've never had to bounce power on my system. Um, and oh, it's man, been a awesome. cu- couple months now. Uh, and before, you know, I got the, the DDWRT style stuff. I got to the point where I'd only have to reset it like once a month. Before that, I guess I have a lot of wireless devices in my house. So it was tending to be like once a week or whatever. Uh, yeah, I, I basically in the same boat. I mean, I bought uh, the Netgear one and I have to cycle power on it. I actually don't even really have to, but you can kind of feel it start to degrade a little bit. Um, but it's, it's, it's about every maybe three or four months. Yeah, so so far this new stuff, I switched recently. But I will say, it. one thing it made me realize is how little I understand about networking. Oh, so yeah, same here. on the consumer hardware, and I've also heard good things about the new mesh routers that have been starting to roll out. Apparently they didn't used to be so good, but Jason, like he was saying, has a Wi-Fi extender. Now I think Google ships one, some other one, Erio or something. There's a couple. Oh, yeah, right. Um, where one connects to your actual router uh, modem and then you have other devices which connect to that device doing exactly what jason said only they sort of what jason has probably is you know i don't mean this insulting but like kind of a dumb thing like it just acts as a client but it doesn't sort of cooperatively do anything with the home the thing that's right. connected to his modem these other ones these mesh ones are supposed to do sort of more automatic configuration with each other to not interfere um, yeah, like I have to manually take all my mobile devices and put them on the extender, which is in the middle of the house, and just hope that that's the best situation for them. Yeah. Whereas if you had a mesh network, they would actually seamlessly go from one to the other. Yep. So um, I've heard good things about those. So apparently it's all around is getting better. But the consumer stuff hides a lot of choices for you. When you go to this other, you know, I did a bunch of reading kind of 
configured the scrape the bare surface of the options. But apparently, I thought I was you know kind of hot stuff by uh, <laughs> knowing how to explore the advanced settings in my DDWRT router. It turned out no, those weren't advanced settings. I mean they were for for it, but when I got this new hardware, the number of things in there that I didn't even understand was astronomically high. So so in the Ubiquity one, I mean, are you in there like modifying IP tables on the command line or does it have a decent interface? So both. You can do everything sort of from the command line because it's meant for people who need to go install, you know, dozens of these in one building. Oh, I see. Um, and manage it remotely and, you know, all sorts of stuff. But they do actually have... a. They have enough of a web UI and it is intuitive enough to, to kind of get you through what you need to do. So I was able okay. to get everything I, I needed to done. But it has all sorts of kind of nice features. Like I had put black electrical tape over the lights on my previous router. Yeah, but I have on, that too. On these ones, they have an option where you just click a button and it turns all the lights off. Oh, that's nice. Which sounds really stupid, but it's like, oh, that's so nice. No, it is because I mean, yeah, ours is right next to the TV and it's just constantly blinking, right? So um, anyways, I, this is not a pitch for Ubiquity. So I'm really enjoying it myself. But do be aware, like, yeah, it, it, I'm sure if something went really bad, it, it would take, you know, that much longer for you to figure out how to fix it. But the idea is it shouldn't go bad because you're not really supposed to mess around with it. Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. Or at least that's and they probably opinion. let you back up the config to a file yeah, or something. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. And then I know cool. things like recently there was some problems and they're really good about pushing updates because they have corporate clients who are very concerned about security and stuff. So a lot of the consumer routers, people just sort of never update their firmware. Um, so they don't really bother pushing updates to firmware that often. But with this ubiquity stuff, that's actually fairly frequent in kind of updating this stuff. Oh, that's great. So the support um, is good. Very cool. Yeah, and if you use our tool of the show, my tool of the show, which... I'm not going to spoil it yet, but uh, wow, that's he'll actually tell you your, your Wi-Fi status, like your signal strength and everything. Um, all right, on to news. So um, this interesting thing, it only affects California, but uh, it was interesting enough I figured I'd bring it up. Um, there's a law in California now. Employers are banned from asking your prior salary. Um, so in other words, you, know, you go to a job interview. Um, uh, they really like you. They say, hey, we want to make you an offer. Uh, they're not allowed to ask you what you made before. Um, and and the reason why, you know, they passed this law is um, it's it's a two-part reason. The first part is um, uh, people tend to not know how to negotiate. We did talk about negotiating in the past. So check out uh, Negotiating for Dummies is the book I recommend. But, you know, pick up any book on negotiating. It'll teach you a lot. Uh, a lot of people don't know how to negotiate. Um uh, you know, one of the big things is not to really just spill all your guts right away. Um, if you just, you know, let's say they were planning on paying you, you know, $30 an hour. Um, and so that's sort of what they have in their mind. And they think, well, we're going to lowball this person. We're going to offer them $25 an hour. So maybe that's their strategy, you know, the, the, the potential company strategy going in. And you go and say, hey, you know, in my last job, I made $8 an hour doing the same thing. Well, they're going to use that information they say oh well we're gonna charge we're gonna you know uh uh ask twelve dollars an hour and this person's gonna be a static it's a 50 percent increase uh and what you don't know as the applicant is is that you know they were willing to offer you you know whatever i said the first time 25 or whatever it was so a lot of people 
sort of like self-injure themselves by uh, giving away their prior salary. Um, and and uh, uh, particularly from the studies that they did, they found that women ten- tend to do this much more than men. Um, so so in the in the theme of sort of trying to close the uh, you know the, the gender wage gap and all of that, um, they passed this law. So the idea is it kind of evens a playing field. Uh, you know, it prevents everybody from making that mistake. Um, and so it's kind of interesting. I mean, I think I, it's one of these things that like, you know, on the surface, like the way I just explained it, it, it sounds very obvious, right? What's not obvious is sort of how that's really going to change the dynamics, right? Um, you know, I don't really know sort of like what the actual implication of that is um, in terms of like, you know, are, I guess the company will not ask you. Some people will probably say it anyways, um, but a lot more people aren't going to say, which means there's going to be this sort of baseline. My guess is a lot of companies are going to start really lowballing people, which is basically going to force them to have to decline a really low offer, which is, in, I think, going to actually hurt women twice as much as they're being hurt already. <laughs> so I actually think it's going to completely backfire um, because what companies are going to do is they're going to say, hey, you know, come for $4 an hour. And, uh, you know, because they're not going to have any information, so they're going to assume really low. And uh, we'll have to see sort of who takes that and who negotiates. And But, uh, yeah, I found this really interesting because, again, I'm super into game theory and all of that lately. And this fits right in, in my wheelhouse. So, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. I feel like we should write that down. Jason claims it'll backfire. Do you have a date <laughs> of when it'll backfire by? No, well, it's one of these things we'll never really know because you know so much of this you know it's also, data is private. Yeah, that's true. It's also very difficult because it's really tough. You want to help, but it isn't clear how to help. And right, that if someone makes, if someone is sort of consistently lowballed at every job, they sort of can fall farther and farther behind what they should be making. If you sort of carry their salaries forward, but like you said. Simply not revealing it doesn't prevent them from accidentally getting a lowball offer and it, not accidentally, but getting a lowball offer and then accepting without realizing they didn't need to accept one that low. Exactly right. I mean, what you want is an English auction where somebody applies to you know eight companies and then they pick the highest offer, um, um, but you know that's not really practical. So uh, so you know in the absence of that, there's always going to be sort of this this gap right Mm. this is really tough but i mean it's good that it's getting consideration because i feel like culturally we have a far way to go before we get over a lot of the stigmas that hurt employees yeah that's true actually yeah not to like spend too much time on this but you know a lot of people are afraid of you know negotiating and pushing back um my two cents of this, number one, a company, even if they say they'll take back an offer, they'll never actually take back an offer. I did. No, right? actually, I did see that happen just recently. What? So anecdotally, this did happen. But keep Wait, going. so is it? Okay, I can see it happening if someone else, like they have two candidates and the other person, but that's usually pretty rare. But uh, so you're saying someone made an offer and then the company made an offer and then the person said... I want, you know, X dollars more. And then the other company just rejected them. No, no. So the story, as I understand it, was that basically the, the I think what the, the candidate was trying to do that, but it just didn't end up that they were taking, they were dragging their feet. 
And so yeah, the I mean, author guess, was withdrawn. Okay, fair. Well, I mean, well, that in general, like that's, you know, uh, that that doesn't happen very often. Um, like it doesn't happen on often enough to really like consider it as part of your strategy. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, um, oh yeah. So I was going to say, so basically, you know, you're negotiating with this recruiter. The recruiter wants you to take the job and it's not the recruiter's money. Like, you know, if you get twice as much salary, it's not like the recruiter has to pay that out. Um, the people who want to, you know, negotiate are actually the finance people at the company who you you don't get a chance to really talk to, right? Which is on purpose because if, if, you know, you develop a relationship with the finance person, that's like a huge liability (laughs) for the company. So, so you purposely aren't exposed to those people. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, and so, you know, and even the finance people, it's not their money either. Right. I mean, it is sort of, I guess, an aggregate, but, but for a specific case, it's not really their money either. So, so people shouldn't be ashamed to say, look, like, I think I'm worth this or I think I'm worth that. Um, but, uh, but you're right that it is kind of like a stigma. Most people feel like they uh, are sort of uh, telling the person on the other end of the line that that person doesn't know what they're talking about or something like that. And that mostly applies to what Jason's talking about at big companies. At big companies, the people doing the hiring are very far removed from sort of the source of the money. Like they're not, yeah, right. they're not really in any meaningful way financially impacted by the decision. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think exactly. all bets are probably off at small companies. Yeah, I've never actually worked at a small company. Have you? No. Yeah, but I, so we, I mean, I can imagine <laughs> that it's a, a different story, right? If you're talking to the owner of the company, negotiating a salary is probably a different conversation. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we'd, you'd, uh, yeah, you'd, uh, you'd probably be talking yeah straight to the stakeholder in that case. Um, but either way, you know, I mean, the law has good intentions and uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, just because I'm skeptical, it doesn't mean I don't appreciate, you know, the intent. Uh, my article is Haskell type classes versus C++ classes. And this is a, I, I guess, a sort of highbrow article. And I actually don't want to refer to it at all because of the Haskell type classes. So um, although I'm sure the coverage of Haskell type classes is insightful and, and great, and I did read the part, um, not being a day-to-day Haskell programmer, um, it was sort of, meh, uh, okay. And then there was a bunch of commentary. I actually picked this up from um, Hacker News, news.y Combinator. And um, there was conversation on, on there about sort of the right way to kind of do this in Haskell. But what I want to recommend this for is the first sort of half of the article covers sort of how classes work in C and C++. Well, how classes work in C++ and how you would implement them in C, because once you implement them in C, you sort of directly understand kind of how they would be implemented in assembly. Um, And then you kind of know how classes work. Now, this is something that I think, well, a lot of people who program in C++ never sort of stop to take time to think about this. Um, And most people wouldn't really know what a V table is or how it works or how it's laid out. Um, and so I want to recommend this because I've never gone looking for that information. So maybe there are better tutorials, but this one I felt thought was a pretty good, clear presentation of that material. Um, so it sort of just starts with some simple examples and, and walks through and it's, yeah, that's cool. I didn't realize you could get the compiler to print out that information. I didn't actually either. Uh, so Jason's saying that you can, they actually show that there's a flag I didn't know about 
that will get the compiler to show the V table for a class. Um, yeah, really cool. Anyways, uh, so so check it out because this is probably gonna be horrible to try to sort of describe over. Yeah, you have to just read it over um, podcast. But yeah, check it out if you if you write in C I'm a big fan of understanding what your tool set is doing. And so part of that is getting an understanding of how memory is laid out for classes in C++. And this is a great reference for that. Very cool. Did um, you ever get... Oh, well, I guess this is oh, leading to the next question. Have you ever been... Uh, so you've done C++ programming before. Have you yep. ever done an interview where you did your language preferred language as C++? Uh, no. I okay. mean, I've had people ask me C++ specific questions, but usually I've been given the choice and uh is that true i was just gonna take it back sorry one time i did an interview and they specifically asked me to code in c plus okay um but yeah the majority of the time i always pick like python or java or something for just for interviews i'm just curious so i know i've been asked sort of detailed internal workings questions before i never know if it's a good question or a bad question but I, I will say yeah, it's I considered fair game. So to ask, what is a V table? How does it work? If you're a C++ programmer, you should sort of be prepared how to answer that. And in Java, I assume, I mean, I'm not a Java expert at that level, but I think Java has a similar thing, understanding kind of how types work um, and what that sort of equates to for memory management. Even though you don't have to do it yourself, understanding how it happens, I imagine is probably fair game. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to get a lot of like, data structure type questions and things like that, which is why I always refer to like using Python or Java. Actually, most of the time, even Java, depending on the question. But uh, if it's some type of, yeah, like something we have to build some data structure, it just seems like Java is a pretty easy language to do it in. Um, but yeah, one time someone asked me to do, I can't remember, it was something like build an adder or something in C++. Um, so yeah, Thomas asks, so this is, uh, sorry, I should probably preface this. So, yeah, we're actually deviating a little bit from news. I'm going to cover some some questions here. So we've been getting a lot of really interesting questions. And, uh, you know, we were making them kind of intro topics, but, uh, you know, we could we could basically answer more questions if we kind of sprinkled them, depending on sort of the 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 scope of the question. Um, So so Thomas actually wrote in and he asked, uh, how do I prep for an interview? And. um, or actually, he specifically asked, how do we prep for interviews? So I'll say, I basically, you know, people who saw the episode that we did with Simple Programmer with John, um, you know, I used to do a lot of top coder and hacker rank and these things. Um, and so I just go back there. So, so I go to top coder, um, you know, I solve a bunch of practice problems. And uh, that's pretty much it. Um, you know, now, like, there's there's some times where I get asked questions that are kind of very machine learning specific. And so I might just brush up on a couple of things there. But uh, um, but yeah, that's really all I do is I just go on top coder and solve problems. And the, the nice thing about top coder, and I think HackerRank as well, is is they give you the answer, not just the code, but they, they give you intuitively like what's how's the way to solve this problem, like a little dossier on each problem. And so, uh, uh, you know, if you're just starting out, uh, or you encounter some really tough problem and you don't really understand, you know, how can this be solved or how can it be solved quickly or something like that. Um, you could always cheat. 
look at the answer and, and maybe learn some, some new data structure or some algorithm you didn't know or some way to reduce the problem or something like that. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I do. What about you, Patrick? Um, cry? No. Um, <laughs> that's how you prepare? Psych myself. I, I stand in the mirror and tell myself. Yeah, <laughs> um, if you had one shot, one opportunity. <laughs> no, I... Okay. So, sort of what Jason said, you know, you I, I think spaghetti. it's... Day to day, which, okay, I, I don't... I want to avoid getting into discussion about whether or not technical interviews where you have to write code makes sense but oh that's true too, sa- yeah. saying saying that this is the, what we deal with in the industry currently and yep. that many companies you should be prepared to answer coding questions then know that it is different than what you do day to day they know that you should know that if you look it up or pay attention um and so practicing what jason's saying those style of questions that are made for programming contests are okay well i'm not going to compete in programming contests yeah except that they're built for you to solve in a constrained time period and exercise some interesting sort of puzzle solving reasoning aspects statistics um in a very controlled manner where someone can understand your process and that's why they make a really good practice is because you know when you sit down to solve it it isn't you know, build a distributed data store using raft consensus for data contention resolution. Um, no one's going to write that in like an hour. <laughs> um, I, I mean, if you do, well, like you probably would have a job. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so you can't, a- I mean, you can ask about that kind of stuff, but you can't really have a person write the code for that. It's too complicated. And so the programming contests or interview questions are great for getting your mind thinking about string manipulation about math operations about you know arbitrary precision you know numbers these kinds of things um that you you may not use day to day and just you know a refresher for data structures and algorithms but i also think that a lot of times it is good to practice the soft questions as well like why do you want this job oh, why are you really leaving your current job and research your company that you're applying for you know if someone asks you well why do you why do you want to come work at Jason's amazing company then you know you say well Jason's an amazing guy and I you know whatever you're you know <laughs> prepare for that be, because being caught flat footed even if they sort of like okay whatever not a big deal he didn't answer that question or she didn't answer that question great um, it throws you for a spin and if you're yeah, right. if you're sort of out of sorts, it's that much harder to bounce back. So prepare for the soft questions too, and spend some amount of time thinking about how you want to present yourself. So you know, you know, as much as I think, at least here in California and Silicon Valley, like there isn't an expectation to wear a suit. You still want to look nice, whatever you're going to wear. Even yep. if you wear jeans and a t-shirt, that like I interview people that are like that all the time. That's fine. I have no issue with that. But you know, it helps that much. If you feel that you're dressed well, I think it comes across. Like as silly as that sounds, I think you no, it's totally you hold true. yourself better. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, Not everybody. No, I'm sure there's someone will say, oh, you know, I you know go in a bathrobe and I feel like I crush it every time. You know, you're probably right. Sure, that's true. But I think for a lot of people, myself, I've noticed that if I take the time to prepare, sort of what I'm gonna wear, you know, if I you know make sure that I look presentable then I sort of feel like I've done my due diligence. And I think that comes across, but. 
Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I think uh, um, I think that you know the company like wants uh, the company you're applying at sort of they want you to represent them, and so you got to think like uh, uh, you know how you know, the the way you dress and the way you you speak and your soft skills and all that is incredibly incredibly important. And I, I think, um, oops, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I think preparing for the interview happens over. It sounds terrible. Happens every over years. Like yeah, it's true. You sort of the it's not even eighty twenty. Sort of like the ninety nine percent of what will get you a job or not. Sort of takes a long time period, months, a year, years of sort of practicing, being involved in this kind of thing. You're not going to hack your way to you know one week of practice and you're going to ace the interview. If you're really strategic and train yourself, you know, probably in a couple weeks, a month, a couple months, you can probably do pretty well. Get yourself, you know, close the gap. Um, but the bulk of it is stuff you really have to be ready for over longer periods of time. And so all the things we're discussing is to sort of take you the final distance, is to differentiate you from the other people um, and to, to help just, you know, assure that you're that much more ready. Yeah, makes sense. So back to a news article. <laughs> Uh, I guess we should have uh, changed the order of these. Uh, This is an article I read a a little while ago, Star Stacker, Astrophotography with C++11. Um, So although this is yet another uh, C++-based article, uh, just like the Haskell one, this is not much about C++ at all. Uh, Well, the Haskell one was about C++, but not about Haskell. (laughs) This one's about astrophotography and not so much about C++. Um, where astrophotography is just taking pictures of stars. Uh, and the, I don't even remember if there was any C++ in this example. Uh, it doesn't look like it. I think Maybe the person was not using the OpenCV was the sort of trick here. They were trying to not use OpenCV to do things where if you take a picture of the night sky, your camera is really sensitive. But if you take many pictures of the night sky, you can sort of get rid of a lot of the noise that okay, is inherent sense. in taking a picture at night with low brightness and although that sounds simple that is really all astrophotography is is sort of related either gathering more light or sort of allowing you to what's called like integrate over longer periods of time like get more samples um but the problem is it turns out the earth is spinning shocker um (laughs) it's also not flat so the earth is a a spherical-ish object and i yeah anyway i'm gonna get into that uh, and, and we're spinning. Yeah, I don't know where the flat earthers have come from. But it seems like that's like another thing again. I want to believe it's just like a shtick, like a meme. Like a I joke, yeah, yeah, probably. Um, anyways, but the earth is spinning. And so if you you know hold the camera on a tripod pointed in a direction for very long, past you know sort of I think like 10 or 15 seconds, the distance the star will move will show up across you know a couple pixels and you'll get what's called blur. Um, so the, the star will be blurred uh, not in a sort of Gaussian way, but in a line along the direction. And so if you leave a camera open for like half an hour, you'll start to get star trails, like these little concentric circles of the stars moving. Well, I guess the stars are fixed and the earth is spinning. Uh, and right, so right. as you try to take longer and longer samples of the night sky, you need to sort of track where the stars are so that you can align all the pictures on top of each other. And that's what this goes over. Uh, and I knew a lot of this stuff, but... It was, I thought this article did a really good job of sort of a clear explanation from, I guess, kind of first principles. Um, and what they end up with, other there's already software that does this, so you don't need to do this on your own. 
Um, and there's you know more advanced techniques than what's presented here, but I thought this was a really good presentation of like if you wanted to approach this really complicated subject on your own without you know just using OpenCV for a lot of this stuff. Here's the principles of it. Yeah, very cool. So do they just register the images on top of each other or do they literally calculate you know the Earth's rotation and all of that? So I don't actually know of anyone. I, they might calculate the Earth's rotation. In this one, they more do like figuring out constellations of stars and figuring out how the constellations move between frames. Got it. But makes I don't sense. think they try to sort of predict where the next one will be. Okay, makes sense. But I, you should write that, Jason. <laughs> all right. That's what I'll do with all the extra time we have. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess you probably don't start off with a very fine uh, measurement of where you're pointing. So it probably makes it pretty hard. Yeah. So you'd right. have to also sort of figure out the field of view and where you're pointing, and you'd have to build all, a model of that up. You have to do basically slam. Slam in space. Space slam. <laughs> space jam? Space jam. Space slam with Michael Jordan and Bugs Bunny. For reasons. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so now, book of the show. Um, so I, I read I read a couple of kind of interesting books. I wouldn't really recommend them. Oh, dear. Um, so I'm not really going to. I'm actually going to recommend a classic that you know I've read several times, which, which, I, which I love, called... Uh, the name is 1984. I'm sure everyone's heard of it. It's by George Orwell. Um, he also wrote uh, Watership Down, I believe, is George Orwell. Um, but he's written a bunch of books about society and, uh, and yeah, 1984 is, is, I would say almost certainly his most, uh, famous book. And, uh, yeah, without kind of spoiling too much, basically, uh, um, it just covers sort of like, it's, it's a fiction book about this sort of totalitarian regime. And, uh, it's where the term kind of big brother came from. And basically the idea is that uh, in this book, the government uh, like literally just has sensors everywhere and they're monitoring everything. And they've also sort of trained the, the people to, uh, they've brainwashed you know, all the citizens. Um, and I'm trying not to spoil too much here, but basically uh, um, you know, they've brainwashed them to sort of uh, you know, tell if, if another person is committing a crime and stuff like that. Um, uh, and then they have something called thought crime where people are just thinking about committing a crime and go to jail. Um, and so 1984 is the basis for, you know, like uh, the Paranoia book series and, uh, and a bunch of other, uh, you know, uh, just all sorts of different, uh, you know, books and films and memes and commentary and stuff like that. You, you'll hear 1984 referenced very often. And so it's a great book. Um, uh, it's super fun to read. And uh, yeah, it's my book of the show. Uh, oh, also, you could get it for free. It's it's a classic. Um, it has no, I don't know, uh, uh, like copyright or anything like that. Um, and so uh, there's a link in the show notes to the actual book. You don't have to pay for it. I, I don't think you meant Watership Down. I think it's Animal Farm. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah, who wrote Watership Down? I have no idea. All right. So the my book of the show is... Words of Radiance, which is uh, part of the Stormlight Archive series by Brandon Sanderson. And I recommended, uh, this is the second book, and I recommended the first one previously, I'm, I'm quite sure, The Way of Kings. Uh, and so I recently finished the second book. And this is, uh, I guess, 
on schedule for once because the third book is coming out uh, November 14th. So, um, oh, nice. If you now, there's a problem though, which is uh, so I listen to these books on audio because I th- they're really long. Um, but the first book was 45 and a half hours. The second book is, was 48 hours. Um, and so the good news is if by the time you listen to this, you could in theory make it through all of the books just in time for the third <laughs> book to come out. But the bad news is that's like, or the good news, I guess, depending is, I mean, that's like almost a hundred hours of uh, audio. I don't even know how many pages that would be a lot of pages but 100 hours between now and November uh, 14th if you want to get them all done in time for the release party for the third book in the series. Yeah, Marathon Audiobook. I don't know if that's been done before. (laughs) So, so no, okay, I have to say at least something about the book. Um, So I recommend a lot of Brandon Sanderson books, I guess. I I don't know. It is what it is. I I enjoy his writing style, uh, and I I don't think I'm the only one. Um, But basically, this continues where the first book left off, and that means I can't say anything about it because basically anything I say about the second book is going to be a spoiler for the first book. So ah. if you liked the first book, this one is also really good. If you didn't like the first book, you, you know, I, I never know what to do if I read the first book of a trilogy or a series and I don't like it. It's like, well, I could go on. And it's like, well, what? Because if I read the second book, I'm going to quit two thirds of the way through. Um, so... I guess start it and plan to make it all the way through, although that's a big commitment. It'll probably, I guess, by the time it's all said and done, be close to 150 hours. Uh, wow. So. Anyways, but the Words of Radiance is an endorsement if you finish the first book. And if you haven't read the first book, go read it. It's really good. It's fantasy. And I like it. And The Way of nice. Kings, book one. Words of Radiance, book two. And the third one, I think, is going to be called Oathbringer which I can't say why, but that means something, but I can't say why. Ah, okay. No spoilers. No spoilers. Very cool. And so you can read all those books on Audible. And uh, if you don't yet have an Audible account, you can actually uh, go to our show notes. We have a link. Um, It's uh, audibletrial.com slash programming throwdown. If you uh, go to that that URL, you can actually sign up and get a free book uh, with your subscription. Um, by clicking on that link and also that uh, helps us keep the the show up and running so uh, we also for people already have audible or want to support us in another way we have patreon Um, it's getting pretty close to christmas so at christmas we take you know whatever extra money we have from the show um, and we spend it on t-shirts that we give to random people so um, uh, you know we don't uh uh, you could totally, uh, what's the word? Uh, you could totally snipe the Patreon no. by becoming a subscriber this month. I think we're going to um, come up with, uh, <laughs> I think we're going to have a more fair way than that. Okay, maybe we'll do some roulette wheel sampling or something. But uh, but yeah, if you're a Patreon subscriber, um, you know, as part of, of subscribing, we get access to the list of email addresses, which we don't share with anybody. Uh, we only use it for giving out free t-shirts. And so uh, when it gets close to Christmas, Sometime in November, early December, we'll uh, we'll start emailing some some winners of T-shirts. So uh, check us out. Uh, it's Patreon.com/slash/programmingthrowdown. And I want to say thank you. I mean, I, I know a fair number of people. I looked on the Patreon the other day. I, we've got a, a quite a few people now contributing. And I know also there's, you know, at every month a number of people who do the Audible trial thing. And so uh, this is encouraging. Like I guess I, I mean I don't 
it's nice to see that people hopefully are benefiting from this and you know also i looked the other day the number of reviews we're getting on itunes we haven't really pushed that in a while or, or talked about it i don't know if we've ever really pushed it but um it's we been have years yeah since yeah, we even mentioned it i mean i think i i want to say and i think it's you when you go to itunes you see only for your country i believe is true um oh i didn't know that i I think that's true and i think we have over 300 reviews now on itunes wow that's amazing so thanks to all those people who did it um and if you haven't done it and you're not going to rate us it's like the app thing do you not like us if you don't like us don't go rate (laughs) us (laughs) but if you really like it if you hate us send us an email if you like us rate us and then send us an email <laughs> actually yeah if you hate us send us an email at definitely not our email at gmail.com <laughs> that's right <laughs> and we definitely won't will reply we definitely will reply <laughs> yeah that's right eventually oh man um cool so yeah thank you so much for for all the support and for all the emails too a lot of the shows recently have been um either people that we were connected with from listeners that we've interviewed or, uh, or or show topics that have also come from listeners. So, so thank you for that. Yeah, and we do um, try to get back to all of the emails, but I will say, um, as an excuse, I, I guess I feel bad about it. Sometimes emails come in during a really busy time, and so they don't always get responded to expediently. So apologize in advance if your emails don't get speedy responses. Yeah, same here. I actually... Uh, I found just a bunch of email that uh, I flagged while I was on vacation about six months ago and never got to it. Ooh, so some people yeah. recently got an email from a reply from from a six month old email. So I apologize for that. Um, but yeah, we, we definitely look at all of them and we try to reply to as many as possible. Tool of the show. All right. So all right, my teased tool, all show. I'm ready for this. That's right. My tool of the show is Wi-Fi Info View. So this is just one I happen to... It's just the first thing I found on Google. There's probably others. Um, but basically what it does is it just pulls up this menu with um, all the Wi-Fi access points you can see, um, what channel they're on, um, what your signal strength is to all of them, and what uh, the level of noise and decibels is. Um, it's the RSSI, which is some kind of like log um, logarithm of the, of the noise. Um, and so basically... <clears throat> Uh, you can look at this and then kind of be strategic. So, for example, um, one time I had this issue um, where I was playing uh, this video game and it started kind of stuttering. This is like a week or so ago. I thought that's kind of strange because, you know, we have this like Wi-Fi setup that I'm pretty proud of and it's just also kind of <laughs> glitching out. And uh, so I re- unplugged my modem and did all that and nothing seemed to fix it. Um, so I went on this, this tool and... Uh, it looked good. It, what it ended up happening is I ended up being connected to the extender by accident because I, I switched over to the extender um, to uh, to kind of fix something and I never switched back. Um, but with this tool, I was able to see, uh, you know, oh, my signal quality to the extender is really low, which makes sense because I was using a computer that's, that's on the other side of the house. Um, but my signal quality to, you know, the main router was still really good and everything. Um, also, you know, you can have channel collisions. So if you and your next door neighbor both have a router uh, uh, router on the same channel, you'll sort of interfere with each other. Um, and so you can actually detect that with this tool. So with this tool, it might say, hey, you know, your signal strength is, uh, you know, 80%. And there's three other people with the same channel in your, in your apartment complex. And so then you could just go in your router and change a channel. 
Um, you can actually play with other things too. Like if you uh, take the, if you have, you know, a USB, um, uh, you know, antenna, USB uh, uh, Wi-Fi antenna, you can actually see, oh, if I put it up, like if I tape it to the wall, my signal strength goes up. You know, if I, if I you know, point the antenna in the wrong direction, it goes down. And so, uh, yeah, the tool just makes it very transparent what's going on. And the reason, okay, so there's a couple of things too, to while we get nerdy, and we've already talked about networking a little, <laughs> 2.4 gigahertz, not all channels are created equal. So most of the channels that are listed on your router, if you bother to go in and configure it, overlap with other channels. So there's actually only, I think, like five. Yeah, that's right. Five channels like that don't overlap. All the others overlap with each other. So, right, so it'll let you pick them, but you know, you'll have twice as many collisions. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not ideal. Um, and what happens when you collide is that, I, I mean, I guess this is what you'll learn about if you ever take like networking or if you've taken networking or any just RF stuff, it's like what you hear as CSMA, CA or whatever, Clarier sends multiple access, uh, collision avoidance, which is basically the radio senses when two people are sending on the same frequency at the same time you basically have extra energy and you go, oh, oh, two people are talking and you enter into collision avoidance, sort of exponential back off where the two people have to randomly, random wait a different amount of time and try again. So the more people that you have on the same channel, it, like for instance, you and your neighbor, um, then the more chance that you have to enter into this exponential back off, which slows everything down. So that's why you want to uh, avoid being on the same channel. Yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, yep, not all channels are created equal. Five gigahertz is better. It has a lot more channels. So the bandwidth, the number of channels is bigger because there's more bandwidth to play with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the other thing, just to mention real quick, if you are on five gigahertz, is uh, try to avoid the really high channels, like 148, 149, because you'll actually start to interfere with uh, the cell phone wavelength. So uh, it, Either that it or crank the, up the power on your router. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No one in your neighborhood would be able to make calls, but, um, but yeah, the uh, uh, it's different in Europe. But in the U.S., our Wi-Fi, uh, sorry, our cell bands uh, can interfere with that. So pick a low channel like forty or forty-eight or something like that. But you could actually see all of this using Wi-Fi InfoView. You could pick a channel like one forty-eight, and you'll see your signal strength will start to go down. Uh, my tool of the show was sent in by, oh, last week we, or last week, last episode, we talked about two, or we talked about uh, music making things, gadgets, uh, oh, gadget is the name of one That's of the, right. I think the, the Korg, the I think, was your tool of the show. What was that? Korg, yeah, gadget. Yeah. I think it's Korg gadget was the name. Um, and we talked about people, hey, people send us some music, we can change our intro. Um, and we actually had two people send in. Uh, some music so we'll probably start you know putting some music at least as outros until we you know we've had this same intro for a really long time i guess i've become somewhat nostalgic for it so we'll see about <laughs> if we'll switch over the intro uh but definitely we're gonna have some outro tunes uh and so uh thanks to those two people in advance uh and one of them actually sent a tip for a tool which i had seen before but i've never played with um so i'm going on their recommendation so we can blame them if it's bad uh, and that is Sunvox. So Sunvox is a modular sequencer that runs on like a plethora of platforms. So the list says Windows, Mac OS, Linux, Windows CE, if you have one of those old 
uh, PDAs, nice. iOS, Android, um, and it is uh, it has a super old school looking interface, but I think it looks kind of cool. And there's all sorts of demos of people making music that's way better than I could ever make. Uh, and so, you know, check it out, Sunvox. Uh, if you like fiddling around and making awesome music and sounds, or if you're like me and you like making the worst possible sounding thing that not even a mother could love. Or if you're like me and you uh, have so little musical talent that you make something terrible and you think it sounds good. <laughs> I guess I'm um, obviously bad that I realize I can't have made anything good. So <laughs> even if I made something good because it came from me, I would just assume it wasn't. That's what I do. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it sounds like it's, I'm like, oh, it sounds like a techno song I would hear on the radio, but I know that it only sounds that way to me because I have no talent. That, that was Michael who recommended Sunbox. Oh, yeah. So sorry. Thanks. I was trying to find it, but I was too slow. Thank you, Jason. Yeah. No Thank worries. you, Michael. So, yeah. Thanks, Michael. So, on to Office Spaces. So, um, this is also a request. I don't remember who off the top of my head. I can, I'll look it up later on. But, uh, um, yeah, there's so, someone wrote in and said, you know, can you guys talk about sort of different what your office space is like, your desk is like? Awesome. You know, all of that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, amazing. it's on the moon. Um, underground yeah yeah in a bunker on the moon um that would be awesome coding in a bunker that'd be like a great hackathon like a hacker space all right um so so yeah so but unfortunately we don't all have bunkers uh most of us work in basically three or i guess let's say four different environments um you either work in cubicles that's probably the most common Um, all the office space yeah exactly so it's you have these like what are they made of like fabric like yeah it's like fabric, fabric some particle board or something um or i guess also the like, matrix right neo or uh was yeah was that's right the, yeah yep so uh you know it's these like walls that don't go all the way to the ceiling and so everyone kind of has some amount of privacy um you can peek your head over the cubicle wall and all of that um you, you'll work in an office so there's some companies where each person you know has their own office and you have this sort of labyrinth uh, of, of hallways connecting all the And offices. sometimes you can have as many as four, five, six people sit in a single office as well. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean one person per office. Um, but, it, but you know, it does mean you can close the door. And so yeah, other than the people in the office, you're insulated. Yeah. Um, there's also a bullpen where you can have up to a thousand people if you have a big enough room um, that are there's all in one gigantic room. And uh, the difference between this and cubicles is uh, you don't have the walls. So you, you'll be just desk to desk to desk, um, but in this very large environment. And typically in a bullpen environment, there'll be sort of spaces reserved, which, which have, you know, couches and stuff like that. Um, uh, just so that if you want to, you know, something more comfortable or you want to stretch your legs or you want to talk to somebody, um, you know, kind of in a more private setting, you can do that. But most um, people don't call them bullpens. Most people call this open office. That, yeah, right. Like that's what most people they say. Oh, open office. That really just means everyone crammed in a big room together. Yeah, yeah. People kind of misuse that. The, the last one is basically your house. <laughs> a lot of people telecommute. Um, but yeah, really, why don't you tell? Oops, sorry, go ahead. Do you really find telecommuting that common? Um, speaking, uh, and all of this section is going to be sort of skewed to the limited views of Jason and I, as far as like having not worked at a ton of variety of different places and mostly working in Silicon Valley. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, where I work now, everyone telecommutes on Wednesdays. Okay. Um, 
So that's kind of like a, I mean, not everyone, of course, but, but a lot of people. Um, but yeah, in general, it's, it's not really that common. I think there's this idea that, you know, if you're there physically, you're able to sort of have a heightened sense of, you know, collaboration and things like that. So, yeah. So one of the things is like, you know, this came up at work talking about open offices and I did a little bit of reading. And one of the things I realized is, oh, interesting. I've never been at a place like this, but open office could could really mean in the, in the in a very true sense of open no assigned seats like you bring a laptop and there's a bunch of you know picnic tables or sort of school cafeteria style tables or whatever it might be and whatever team you're sort of working with currently you just sit next to them um and people just sort of mingle around you get up and move if a group is noisy whatever you just sort of flow around and sit wherever you want uh, i've never been in an office like that it sounds kind of cool sounds kind of crazy um but, you know, I guess some people, this works for them, especially, I guess, if your teams are really dynamic uh, and you're growing a lot, like I could imagine where this would be useful. But for most... Yeah, the, the team that... The company that's famous for this, or one of them, is Valve. So um, Valve has an open office, and basically, you know, they have one guy who's like a particle physics expert. Like, I mean, in-game particle physics. And so... <laughs> You know, he just, you know, if, if a team says, oh, you know, my fireball particle, like, isn't looking the way I want it to look, then he'll sit with that team, and then he'll sit with some other team. And so they, I guess the way Valve is set up is they have all these specialists, and so it's kind of conducive to that sort of setup that they could be able oh, to move cool. around, and so they figured, why not just have everyone move around? I didn't know that. But I think in most places, most people have assigned seats, um, right. and you can, you know, bring in a picture of your family or you know, get your desk just the way you want it. Um, and I think that's sort of the most common um, by far. And for me, my experience out here in Silicon Valley has been you move a lot. Yeah, you know, definitely. your team moves probably, you know, every six months or more. Yeah. Um, and so you're moving around. You might move within the same building. Your spaces just might get reconfigured. You might move to a different building. Um, but yeah, you move pretty often. Yeah, I've never quite figured out why. Um, but I think team sizes yeah. just grow and shrink so fast that like this team needs more space. In order to give them more space, you have to move a different team. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. Yeah, some kind of like defragging type thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then um, I think... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, and I think, you know, the other common thing to offices is having some area where you can have team meetings or group meetings, conference rooms. Yeah. Um, they don't... You know, they typically have whiteboards and, you know, maybe a TV screen or a projector or somewhere for someone to show something off of a laptop. Um, but, you know, they typically hold between, you know, sort of like six to 20 people. Um, and sometimes there's bigger ones, but that's pretty typical. And you, you'd have several of those kind of scattered around your workspace. So think about, you know, The Office on TV, the TV show, The Office, which no longer runs, you know, everyone kind of, well, most of the group sort of sat in a big common area, all of the, I guess, salespeople. And then they, Michael Scott would call them into the conference room. And yeah, that's actually pretty typical. Yep, that's pretty normal. I mean, a lot of conference rooms will have some way to, to, to write. So they might have a, like a wall that's writable um, or they'll have you know a bunch of blackboards or whiteboards or something like that. And the other thing is conference rooms are typically uh, have some way of reserving them. So the calendar system or whatever, where you sort of book a conference room for a time period, and that's where you hold your meetings. Yep. So. Yeah, totally. Um, 
Yeah, so, so that's basically how the most almost every office is set up. Um, going to like your desk, um, I personally have always had standing desks. So, so Patrick and I used to work together a long time ago. And where we worked, we had to deal with kind of a lot of robotics and, and machinery. And so I was always standing, like the, the desks were always standing there. And I just kind of got used to it. And uh, I just, yeah, I'm really a big fan of that, actually. I really love uh, standing desks. Um, so what I actually have now, and, and it's just because everyone, it's just now the standard thing, is a, is a mechanical desk. So actually, like, you can hit a button and it'll change from a standing to a sitting desk. Um, they have some really fancy ones where you can have, like, presets. So you can put in your height. And when you hit sitting desk, it'll actually go to a certain setting. I don't really have something that fancy. Um, mine just has you an up and a down. And when you hold the down button, it, it goes down. Eventually, it's down so low, it becomes a sitting desk. <laughs> um, but... Uh, uh, but yeah, I think standing desks are great. I feel like I can focus a lot better when I'm standing. Um, what about you? Do you do standing or sitting? So mine actually is one of those fancy ones. So I have presets. So I have a preset sitting, preset standing. And do you switch or something? Um, yeah, but I find that I fidget a lot more when I stand, I think. Oh, okay. So after a little period of time, I get, like, I think I start to get, uh, like, defocused from it. But I try mm-hmm. to stand, but I don't stand as much as I probably should. They say sitting kills you. Um, so <laughs> I heard that. I'm yeah. probably dying, but <laughs> I, I spend most of my day sitting, but I try to spend some amount of it standing. Yeah, so. makes sense. But then, you know, a lot of, you know, how your desk ends up looking or, or being is whether you've chosen to have a desktop, a laptop, or both. So my current setup is I have a laptop that I take with me to meetings, but I mostly work on a desktop. And I think for me, I like having a desktop because it's even faster uh, and mm-hmm. it's sort of in a persistent state and everything, I have just tons of things running and tons of things open and I don't have to worry about it because I have a very powerful desktop versus on my laptop, I keep it, you know, sort of a minimal working environment so I can do work, but I'm not really, for me, I don't do a lot of work remotely. So I'm not really set up to work from my laptop. Um, and gotcha. I feel like power user is the wrong word, but when I sit at my desktop and I just do it just all the way I want it, uh, you know, and yeah, everything's set up, everything's running, everything's, in, I guess, in warm memory, right? Like, all the apps just stay running all the time, so I can just click on them, and they're there, and I just use them. Yeah, makes sense. So, um, I'm a big fan of desktop, but I know a lot of people really love laptops so that they can, you know, sort of work at their desk and then pick it up and take it home and just keep working. Yeah, I mean, in my case, I have, uh, um, you know, all my development is, is like these massively parallel programs, and so... Uh, um, I can't even really build them on on one machine. So uh, even the building of the program is distributed. That's a good point. So, yeah. so they yeah they give me a laptop, and uh, everything I do is through SSH. Yeah, I guess if you're connecting um, to the cloud, anyways, it doesn't matter if it's from your desktop or your laptop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think uh, I think you can request a desktop where I work, but uh, I mean, definitely there's people who are building an app or something like that, and they need a desktop. But for me, yeah, it's just it's uh everything's on ssh and so i plug my laptop into you know my monitor and keyboard uh, when i'm at my desk but it's just like another a different interface um so the other thing too is uh external monitors so kind of getting a lot of screen real estate i'm personally just i'm the worst possible example of this like all i i literally just have one external monitor and i mirror it 
So I'm not even using the Ooh. screen on my laptop. <laughs> and and the re I'll tell you the reason why. It's because I'm constantly kind of going to meetings and, and coming back from meetings. And whenever I do something like extending my screen, it doesn't really gracefully handle when I'm plugging and unplugging. Um, versus, you know, when I have it mirrored, I plug in and everything stays in exactly the same position. And so then I just, you know, work on the nice keyboard and mouse. But but I have like my mental model hasn't changed at all. And then when I unplug the same thing. And so I haven't really found like a workflow that is better than that for me. But but everyone thinks I'm crazy because like I have a screen that's showing the same thing that I'm not looking at. I'm one straw short of the six monitor day trader. Oh, so you're the opposite. <laughs> All right, well, this is good. So I have two big monitors and then I have a third monitor, but the third monitor is plugged into a different computer. So I actually have two full desktop setups on my desktop. One, oh, okay. one machine with keyboard and mouse and monitor, and then a second one with two monitors, keyboard and mouse. And then sometimes I have stuff running on my laptop. And so I have my laptop sitting next to me, not plugged into any of those monitors. So, you know, I think if I had a desktop, you know, where, uh, you know, I wouldn't have to unplug and have all the windows go berserk. Yes. Then yeah. I think I think I would have probably two monitors and I'd make use of I, I've had three monitors before. For me, for the my flow, three is too many. I don't yeah, really need three. Sense. I have three on my desk now because I have a second desktop for bizarre reasons. But um, right. the two two monitors about right because basically I have one monitor in front of me where I sort of have my IDE, my terminal. Um, yes, I'm. Yeah, I have both. Uh, and nice. and then in my second monitor, so that one's sort of like straight ahead. So most people put it, you know, sort of like the crack in the middle and then the screen's symmetric to either side of their head. But I actually oh, have I one monitor straight ahead and one monitor to the right. And oh, and the monitor on the right has like, you know, my web browser, <coughs> Stack Overflow, uh, and uh, <laughs> and then, um, you know, Future my- Future source code. <laughs> and my, you know, my pull request, GitHub stuff, whatever, you know, and then uh, split with sort of email, the, you know, chat stuff. All of that lives on that right screen. Makes uh, sense. And so if I'm doing like email and stuff, I'm sort of off facing to the right. But if I'm coding and focused, I'm like all straight ahead absorbed. Ah, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, I think there was a time I had my laptop, uh, you know, it wasn't mirrored. And that's basically what I did. I had the main screen for like the coding, all of that. And the other screen had the chat and Gmail and all that. Yeah, some people do the second screen uh, where they rotate the monitor 90 degrees. So it's like tall. Oh, yeah. And they can read. And then they can read. Yeah. And that's kind of cool. Makes sense. But yeah. it bothers me because it looks weird. Yeah. It looks like an L, like a goofy obtuse L. So I, I, uh, I have a friend who she, um, she consults startups for uh, recruiting. So in other words, she, she's not a recruiter anymore, but she goes to startups and helps them get talent, um, like an advisor. And uh, the number one thing she said is she told them to give all their employees the best, biggest monitors. And uh, they say that when candidates come to interview, there's just something, it's, it's, it's like kind of, you know, uh, conscious, kind of subconscious. But when people come to interview and they see a bunch of really huge monitors, it, it massively affects whether they'll take the job or not. Hmm. 
Like they look at it as like, oh, the company really cares about these people. They're giving them huge monitors. And I thought it was so bizarre. And even, you know, the lady I was talking to, you know, it's like an empirical thing. You know, she didn't really have a, you know, psychological answer or anything. But, uh, but yeah, people are sort of uh, uh, really valued based on uh, the size of the monitor. It becomes like a really important thing. So um, also at, at most big companies, it's entirely possible to just get whatever sort of keyboard, mouse, chair setup you want. Um, and when I've been at really big companies, they even have like a place you can go to and they'll sort of measure you and recommend something for you, teach you the right way to sit and how that you're going to die yep. because you sit too much. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, they don't say that, but they do. You get scoliosis. Um, and so, so you can sort of get whatever setup you want. And some people have really crazy stuff, like really fancy chairs, keyboards with mechanical switches like Cherry MX Blues that just go, you know, you hear it across the room. And it just gives me cramps thinking about pushing on those keys. They're so hard, but, um, you know, people, yeah, some people like it. Yeah, people just have some people have like really old IBM style keyboards. Yeah, right. Uh, and some people have the Kinesis dished keyboards for uh, r- reducing RSI, repetitive yep. stress injury. Yeah, people will have really, uh, really elaborate setups. So you I see have sort a of vertical everything. mouse. That's sort of my speciality, I guess, is I have a vertical mouse that I really enjoy. Um, for people who don't know, a vertical mouse is. Uh, uh, you don't have to bend your wrist. So in other words, like, like right now, like if you're not driving or something, put your hand on the table with your thumb, you know, the way you'd hold a regular mouse. And if you look, your your bones are actually crossed over. And it doesn't sound like it matters, but but uh, instead, like hold your arm the way you'd hold like a you know a Coke or something, a bottle. And there's actually a mouse that feels like that. Um, it'd be terrible for video games or something like that, but. But if you don't have to, you know, be that precise or quick, uh, it actually saves like a ton of stress on your arm. So, uh, yeah, so that's that's sort of the only real ergo thing I have. Um, so we can go to like uh, office amenities. Um, so what are some of the coolest things you've seen in offices, either that you've worked at, visited, you know, heard about, rumored about the moon base? <laughs> moon base. So, so well, okay. Uh, a lot of offices have some way to get food easily. So, um, you know, because you think about it, like you're working, sometimes you pull crazy hours, especially if you're coding. Um, you know, you, a lot of coding jobs, uh, a lot of software engineering jobs have kind of an ebb and flow. And so when you're really in a grind, you know, you want to be able to get some food. You don't want to have to go 12, 14 hours. So, so most places will have like a convenient way for you to eat. Um, hopefully it's even just like, it's just like ubiquitous food. I mean, it doesn't have to be anything fancy. It could be just like a stash of granola bars or something, but most offices will like hit up a Costco or something every week or two and, and there'll be, you know, kind of a place to eat. Um, some other kind of cool amenities, some places will have a gym where you could go and and work out, especially if you need to, uh, think about something. Sometimes it's good to like go for a run or even go for a walk around the building type thing. Um, a lot of places will have a game room, so it could be some ping pong or Xbox or something like that um, as a way to sort of decompress, right? Um, some other kind of more esoteric things uh, are like nap pods. So for you who haven't seen this, um, it's actually, I don't even know how to describe it. Okay, so it's like a chair, but the chair is, you know, tilted back. So you're lying down in this chair 
And then there's this dome, and uh, the dome just goes over your head. And it's, it's not like playing. It's like it's kind of like IMAX, like an IMAX just for you, except it's not playing any video. It's just it's just a black dome that goes over your head. And so it you know kind of completely takes away you know the outside stimulus. And so you can just kind of, uh, in theory, you can sleep. I think it's kind of weird to sleep like right there where everyone's you know working. Um, but in theory, you could do it. But it's really a way to just kind of rest your eyes and, and, and chill for a bit. Um, there's also quiet rooms. These also be called prayer rooms. Um, you know, a lot of places have that. And uh, I have to kind of confess. So when uh, my son was really young, um, I actually didn't take my paternity leave. There's like a period of time in between when he was born and when I started my paternity leave. And it's kind of strategic because um, I had parents in town that were helping and stuff like that. But, you know, we had a newborn, like just born. And uh, there's definitely a couple of times around that time where I, I slept in the quiet room for probably like an hour. <laughs> and so... I'm going to tell um, your boss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If my boss uh, uh, is, is watching the podcast, well, he can't fire me because I don't work there anymore. But ah. uh, that happened. Um, uh, but yeah, so in general, you know, quiet room is a good place. Or if, you, if you're really just exhausted, you could take a nap before driving home or something like that. Um, those are the big sort of office amenities that I remember. Some things people have at their desk, like, did you ever work somewhere where people had sent on exercise balls? I think standing desks sort of replaced this, but... Yeah, that's true. I, I feel yeah, like this, this was a thing crazy. a while ago. Yeah, like, it's. Uh, I don't know if this has even been parodied because... I think it's one of these things that if people saw it, they just wouldn't even know what to think. But yeah, there's people who, and I'm not insulting these people in any way, but it's just like, it's an interesting thing to see. Like there's people who just, yeah, sit on an exercise ball literally all day. And the idea like is you, just, you're you're sort of wobbling a little and your, store, your core kind of gets an exercise so it's better than just kind of sitting around. Yeah. Um, I did sit on an exercise ball for a while. I used to have one at my desk, a chair and an exercise ball. Okay. Um, until someone took it. I don't know where it went. <laughs> someone took your Well, so I showed up when I first started working and someone had left one. And so I used it. And then one day mine disappeared. So maybe the person came back and took it. Um, oh, I see. But anyway, so I had one. It actually, you know, I couldn't do it for long periods of time. But it's kind of nice if you're just like answering email or doing something that's not super focused. Just sort of like bounce around a little. And t- I kind of liked it. I'm not going to lie. Okay. It looked goofy. But it was kind of. I'll fun. have to see if I can find one somewhere in the office. I'll try. Yeah, try they it. have also the exercise ball chair, which I think is not the same thing. Oh wait, I don't all. know what that is. That is where literally it's a chair. So the exercise no. ball is is pinned. It can't move. But you're just getting the cushion of an exercise ball. But you're not really doing any of the workout. Whoa! I see this. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, isn't that crazy? I, I saw one the other day. Before. I was like, "What is this?" <laughs> This is cool. I kind of want one of these. All right. You, you check it out. You All right. I'm going to contact my ergonomics department and tell them I need one of these. You need a chair. That's so the other thing I've like. seen, uh, typically in like a communal space, although I did one time see a person who had one at their actual <laughs> desk, is a treadmill desk where you have a standing desk and then a treadmill underneath it. <laughs> and so you have to walk while you type. Now, I do not know how this works. 
If you're doing like video conferencing or doing training videos or watching YouTube videos uh, or Twitch, I mean, not totally working. Sure. But I feel like if I'm programming, I get seasick, like moving, moving my head as I walk and like trying to type. I know. Like, I don't get it. I mean, people do it and I don't knock them. It's great. I wish I could exercise that much, but like, you know, I have seen this though desks where it's like a tall standing desk and then just basically like a treadmill underneath. Yeah, I know a guy at work, and uh, I'll I'll call him Mike. His name is Mike, um, and so Mike, if you're if you're listening to this, is someone I used to work with, and uh, yeah, as you said, he probably spent three hours a day on the treadmill, Whoa, that's and he got a lot done. So this isn't knocking him at all. But yeah, like the idea of trying to walk and write code at the same time, it just boggles my mind. So, um, some other kind of just kind of novelty things. Uh, some companies do free massages. Um, some companies have like a valet service, so you don't have to find a place to park in the parking lot. You just get to work and hand over your keys. Um, even crazier, there's some valets that'll like uh, refuel your car. So if you have an electric car, they'll Anyone make sure all the cars are charged. <laughs> yeah, they'll if you have, they'll just uh, I guess like a tanker truck drives by, like a small tanker truck and just fills all. I don't know. It's bizarre. Um, some other really novelty things. Uh, there's some people who take an airplane to work. Um, I know somebody who, uh, and you know, like this is something you would hear about, like someone takes an airplane to go to the Alps to rescue someone or something, or, or goes to Yukon uh, or something like that. But this is just, yeah, normal people who just take a small biplane to work. Um, or a ferry, you know, we live in Silicon Valley. So there's a, a I don't know if it's still running, but there was a ferry that was taking people from, you know, East Bay across the bay to uh, to South Bay to, to various companies. Well, in New York City, people take the ferry to work. Like, that's pretty common. I think, actually, oh, yeah, ferry isn't that novelty. Yeah, that's true. I can think, actually, yeah, yeah, guess, a lot of people do that. That's okay, though. Yeah. But here it is kind of, it's different. So Yeah, I mean, well, we have such a traffic nightmare here that... And we didn't yeah, even cover all of the sort of things about, well, it's okay, it's not really part of office spaces, but all of the nice things that we as sort of working in the programming field, you know, I, I feel like sometimes I take for granted and forget that we get health insurance and, well, I guess it's, it depends on if you live in the United States or not, but, um, you know, get health insurance, retirement account contributions, like paid internships. There's lots of things that, you know, are sort of amenities, I guess, in some way that... Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I, I'm um, not a super big fan. I've never been, even I have worked at places that have been considered to have really good offices and I've never really been super impressed that like, I feel like I can be so much more productive here yeah, as far as like at my thing, desk. The peripheral the, stuff is really nice, but I feel like it could be in the building next to me and be just as effective. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The only thing that uh, I think makes a difference is... Um, the food situation and the only reason is because it helps to like build uh the camaraderie like basically oh, fair. yeah like I've, I've been like you want to be in a way like i would say you know if i was designing a place for, for people to be software engineers i'd want to design in a way where people were forced to like kind of socialize together or not forced obviously but like incentivized and so the like having one place where everyone goes to eat is kind of a really good way to do that. Um, also, the the game room. So if you have you know one room just like stocked with like Xbox and a bunch of other games, then it kind of like 
the first thing that'll happen when you set that up is people will kind of show up when someone else is playing and then leave and they'll kind of be like contention for the xbox but then you know people pretty quickly realize oh well we should just all play together and then we don't have to have contention like someone could just jump into the game and instead of leaving right and so it kind of forces some like camaraderie and, and some socialization well that's uh, all you yeah, got for right. this time yeah that's that's uh that's there's been a whole bunch of crazy setups you can go online businessinsider.com is famous for talking about like oh check out you know linkedin's new san francisco office where you can you know paraglide off the skyscraper <laughs> like these crazy things um but in general i think we, we covered kind of the basics and and sort of why they're important so if you have a crazy office setup send us an email we'd love to hear it if, if you like program while you're flying a supersonic jet or something Mm. That would be amazing. Send us a picture. Um, yeah. Programming, yeah. flying, and taking a selfie. <laughs> <laughs> there are limits, Jason. Yeah, I don't think... Uh, yeah, don't end up in the news for, you know, crashing an airplane or something. That would be bad. But if you could pull off a selfie, do it. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, man. Uh, so thanks a lot again for your support. I uh, hope you enjoy this episode. You know, this, this isn't about a coding language or an interview with a coding language inventor or anything like that. Uh, it's kind of an off-the-wall thing. We were asked in an email about it, and so we thought it'd make a fun episode. Uh, so yeah, send us an email and let us know what you think, because you know we, there's a lot of topics like this, and uh, you know whether you like it or not will really determine what we talk about. So, all right, till next time. See you later. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.